This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. topic is cross-cultural communication and self-awareness. Uh, I think with the development of information technology and all-around expansion of international relations, cross-cultural communication has received more attention. We can say soft power or smart power based on the hard power have become an important topic. I think the cross-cultural communication uh, not only contributes to the progress of disciplinary construction, but also promotes the internationalization of academic exchanges and development of multicultural differences. But I think when we concentrate on the sign of U.S. cross-cultural communication, I believe self-awareness should be focused and studied. This is my outline, or uh, can divide it in three parts. One, self-awareness in the context of internationalization. Second, self-awareness in language transplant. Third, looking for objectivity and self-awareness. And then when compared with some pictures to uh, express my viewpoints. There's uh, two pictures. In the uh, left hand, we can say a photo uh, from Starbucks in the center of Shanghai, you know, Xinjiangdi. And the students visit to Shanghai, you will see this place. And the right hand, we can say uh, foreign friends will uh, perform the art of tea in the tea houses. Uh, in my viewpoint, I would say uh, six years ago, we can find 114 stores in Shanghai, 14 Starbucks stores. Uh, today, I think uh, the figure uh, must exceed the, this figure. But now in this year, we also find 510 tea houses in Shanghai. We, we find this figure from one, one Fort Life Network. Although I think these tea houses can better the Chinese taste with drink menu and refreshment gradually become more diverse. But I think the popularity and influence are still drafted by Starbucks. What's, what I mean is American business and culture have great influence in China, especially in Shanghai. Those are also two pictures. In the right hand, we can say the Chinese Spring Festival in the Times Square in New York. 
the right hand, we can say uh, Chinese martial art have received attention from the United States. So we, we also can see control interaction. And we find many Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and all festivals, and also festivals of China and Shanghai. Uh, two years ago, I visited Amish, the country, Amish country. I was shocked by the way of living that Amish people in the United States, a peaceful, simple life uh, without electricity or limited use technology. Just as, uh, just as near the Shanghai, we can find some very small town, just like uh, this one, Zhujiajiao, here in the Shanghai district. It's also Shanghai, near the Shanghai, the small town, Fengjin town. So I think this peaceful life is similar as Amish country, a peaceful, simple life. So uh, comparison with uh, different phenomena, I think globalization has become a reality, taken place in great depths. Uh, with the United States, might give you more consideration how to use their economic and cultural advantages, expand their market shares and the living space. But with China, I think uh, globalization is draw the practice and experience of the United States and shares the fruits of internationalization and marketization. However, as a Chinese scholar, I would think China is never really concerned about the lost itself. So I want to think out and think, what is internationalization? How, who is the international? What should be the model or example? So um, a few decades ago, there may be only one direction. International means Americanization. So in, in this sense, internationalized China is simply to keep up with the United States. But I think today, uh, the situation has changed greatly, in which the prospect of civilization and cultural diversity can only be achieved by interaction, communication, and win-win outcomes. So uh, the first part, I want to point out one question, how to protect our own cultural self-awareness in the globalization discourse. Second part. Uh, I want to discuss self-awareness in language transplant. You know, in Shanghai, in the, uh, in the right hand, you can see uh, many English training institute or group, uh, 51 talk, uh, and education first, and our, uh, and our Wall Street English, so many training group. Since in Shanghai or in China, since the reform and opening up, the major foreign language Shanghai has been learned is English. From the first grade in primary school to the graduation of doctorate, English is a com compulsory testing subject for every major assessment. Along with language learning, I think it forms on the way of thinking and outlook, which is inherent in language. However, I think during the entire learning process, several places in China Taking Shanghai's example, overlook the Chinese education and unique Chinese way of thinking to varying degrees. So, in this presentation, I will introduce the characteristic of Chinese thinking connected with language. 
Let's say this picture. There's a bat and deer, there's two animals. I think language is different rooted in the soil culture and history. Chinese characters are pictograph and ideograph. So a bat and a deer appearing in the same time on a painting do not simply mean combination of two animals, but represent a blessing of good fortune and good luck. Why this? Bat, in Chinese words, we say bian fu. Deer, in Chinese words, we say lu. This is the same pronunciation as happiness and fortune. So, combination bat and deer, in Chinese words, we means good luck. So I think it is a very different thinking ways about Western culture or English. Next, we also next good example in wedding tradition. Friends will give a pocket of a gift, which is full of jujube bees, peanuts, logans, and lotus seeds. Means conceiving and giving birth to a baby soon. So, you know, we can say the meaning of hieroglyphs can be speculated through forms and sounds. While an English way of thinking, there is no cause and effect relation between the four foods and giving birth to a baby. So this is a characteristic of Chinese or Chinese language. I think this is self-awareness. And I think it has great influence in thinking, in religious, in literature, in art. So my real point is the differences in thinking modes lead to the difference between Chinese and Western culture. Chinese people use characters as high uh, hieroglyphs tend to be more visualized in terms of way of thinking. They can use logic regarding forms and sounds to associate two things which have nothing to do with each other. English, however, is about alphabet and its meaning cannot be speculated directly. It influences more abstract things, a way of thinking from superficial to the profound. So, so I think the language best pictograph is very different from the Western culture. I think it is important for Chinese people to learn our own language and appreciate the charm of Chinese, which is an essential part of forming a sense of history. This will uh, give an example about Hong Kong and Singapore. So I think the best, best way of expressing one's thoughts and feelings is through his mother tongue no matter how well he speak other language, though this mother tongue may not be understood. So I, I think the relationship foreign language and mother language is my viewpoint. Compared to the mother tongue, foreign language are the adapter. However, the power of the culture we can in the blood of our own countries, which is our root. I think Americans are confident in their roots, in their language. So do Chinese people. To learn and understand the culture of others, not to lose itself. Rather, I think it is to achieve a better self. Third part. So I think we should looking for objectivity and self-awareness in cross-cultural communication. I think the real purpose of cross-cultural communication between China and America is to look for and confirm each other's characteristics. Then we will be able to learn more about ourselves and each other. 
because we know about others, we have the talent of using language other people know, the text other people write, and the logical other people understand, to express their own language, own opinion, own meaningful world. So I think the outcome of cross-cultural communication is not to make ourselves the same as others, but to tell others in a way other people could understand how we are different to each other. Therefore, we can come back to the internationalization. Internationalization is to find out the way that other people could understand you. And it's a means, not an end. To find out the way that other people understand you requires a broad range of knowledge, objectivity, and rational judgment of values. So we should, we should open ourselves and sustain our specialties. So we come back to the Starbucks coffee. People who buy coffee at Starbucks, I think it does not necessarily mean that they think Starbucks make outstanding coffee. But they might know all about Starbucks, even before they enter the cafe. When it is cold and raining outside, no matter where you are, Jerusalem, London, Hong Kong, Shanghai, you know you can order a cup of coffee and a bamboo from Starbucks. At the next block, we see the familiar light though you are totally new to the city. But for me, I personally prefer to meet friends in a tea houses or restaurant in Shanghai where I could feel the sense of home I miss. So I think the internationalization to open ourselves to let any kind of Starbucks come in to make ourselves aware of how to make our comfort tea and be more tasty and to let others learn about <coughs> our uniqueness. So the more the Starbucks are, the more important the tea houses are in every single city of China. Uh, for do this for you have the viewpoints or your suggestion the viewpoints, I think it's essential to eliminate the bias consciously during cross-cultural communication and interaction. The four pictures, the different culture, different people, different places. So I think there is no rule that could apply to everything. And exception always exists. We should dispel the bias all the time and conduct a field observation. So um, in the everyday life or the theoretical research, we always judge other people according to our standards and predisposition. Cross-cultural communication, Australian internationalization is a practical event to take off the levels and to interact face-to-face. -face which is much better back-to-back. -back. So objectivity means abdown any obvious and subtle hostility of the culture, diversity of a notoriety separation. And I think it is normal that cultures vary. The correct understanding and implementation of tolerance not a burden, so we should respect minority group of people, regardless of origin, nation, religion, family background, gender, the sexual relations. And it is particularly important to cross-cultural communication. So, brief conclusion. I think three aspects we should play a crucial role in cross-cultural communication today, which are first, deal with thinking and conscious and self-respect. Second, deal with learning from other cultures and be confident in our own. Third, to deal with the performance of values and rational objectivity. That's all. Thank you. Thank you.
afternoon. Uh, at the very outset, I would like to thank, in particular, Dr. Chi Wong and Dr. Megan Keita for, uh, and, and his colleagues, Brian Crable and others, for inviting me this afternoon to speak to you all. Uh, special thanks also to the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences. I had the pleasure of visiting their campus in 2012. And also, I want to thank all the students who are here. I hope you are getting more than extra credit by being here. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll try my best to make it meaningful to you in the 15 minutes or so that I have. Saturday afternoon after lunch, when I teach my classes after lunch, students keep complaining. So I tell them it's too early to begin until 11 o'clock, and then it's lunch break, and then it's post-lunch, so when do we actually have time to teach? Um, but anyway, uh, switching gears from international um, understanding to corporate social responsibility. Uh, since 2005, uh, my students and I have conducted studies in a few countries. Um, we began with Singapore in 2005. Um, and uh, I will present just a couple of slides from that. And over the years, we have conducted studies in Italy. Uh, now two are uh, conducting studies in the Netherlands. We also did a couple of studies in Switzerland, and one in China with a colleague of mine from Shanghai Jiaotong University, uh, all on perceptions and practices of CSR uh, among a range of organizations. The Singapore study was basically centered around corporations, large corporations. Uh, since then, I have taken a particular interest in small and medium enterprises. And I think that's particularly relevant to the topic that I want to focus on today, which is basically religion and how it affects or how it may affect CSR. And I will present only two slides from the Singapore study and two slides from the study from Italy. Um, oh, it's still me, narcissist. Uh, something is wrong. Um, we begin with the definition. I'm not going to read it uh, completely. If you're interested, then I can send you uh, the PowerPoint slides. Uh, I knew students would be here, so I decided just to put up the definition so that we are all um, on the same page. Uh, I just want to point to Global Compact, which uh, was uh, begun uh, in 2000 by then UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. Um, it was launched in Davos uh, at the World Economic Forum. And basically, it was a voluntary effort uh, to get corporations to focus on uh, these four principles, you know, human rights, labor standards, the environment, uh, and anti-corruption. And from that, we move on to the research questions that have driven most of uh, my studies, uh, again, with my students. Essentially, we looked at perceptions of executives with regard to CSR. You know, wh what did they perceive CSR to be? How did they define it? Had they heard the term at all? And what did they think of it when the term CSR was um, 
given to them. By the way, the two studies we, didn't, we did in Switzerland centered around two of the leading industries that uh, come to mind when the term, you know, word association. If I say Switzerland, what would you say? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Chocolate. Chocolate. Ah, okay. <laughs> What's the next thing that comes to mind? <laughs> Banking. And the third? Chocolate. Chocolate is a one of them. So watches. Swiss watches. And so what, what we ended up doing was uh, look at the luxury watch industry in Switzerland and their CSR practices as well as the CSR practices of the banking sector in uh, Switzerland, um, especially the corporate foundations that are linked to the banking sector. So what we also looked at were specific activities that were performed in the name of CSR in this range of big corporations as well as the small and medium enterprises. I will only, as I said, present to you two slides from the Singapore study and two slides from the um, study in Italy. What are the motivations behind CSR practices in Singapore? I won't go through all of it. As you can see, enhanced reputation, enhancing community trust and support, long-term sustainability, increase in profits, these are the things that seem to be predominant in the mind, uh, minds of these corporate executives when we uh, <coughs> you know, ask them. When it comes to drivers of CSR uh, in the Singapore study, um, these were some of the drivers. You know, government, NGO, mass media, corporations, trade associations, consumers, employees. As you can see, these are all lumped together as most of them are organizations in their own rights. Uh, when you come to employees, of course, you're talking about individual uh, people. Um, this is all important later on when I start talking about uh, religion. In the Italian study, which was a study uh, that we did in 2012, again, SMEs, small and medium enterprises only, based on the OECD definition of small, medium, and micro. As you can see, the motivations were improve, improving public welfare, but then you also have such things as enhanced reputation, and so on. So CR, CSR is still a very, what you call a strategically oriented activity for most corporations. So they see it as part of strategy. Here were some of the drivers of CSR among in, the, in the Italian study. So again, large organizations. Now, the point I'm trying to make based on these two quick studies, uh, uh, representing these two studies is, we are always talking about groups, about organizations. When it comes to the drivers of CSR. We are not really talking about the individual because all of these are made up individuals. And what are the individual values that we have? What are the individual morals that drive CSR? Is it all about very strategically thinking how does this affect 
or help the reputation of my organization. The theme of my talk basically is that there are certain key factors that drive how individuals look at CSR. And I believe that religion is one theme that has really not been looked at at all. And what is setting to talk about religion, right, Villanova University. And it may very well be that a lot of the literature in CSR has been generated by Western cultures, where obviously there is a penchant for separation of church and state, but is there really a separation of church and state in the United States? It's open to a lot of debate, isn't it? If you look back at the discussions that are happening on various issues, social and otherwise, um, during the current campaign, for example, in the United States. So I believe that religion plays a huge role, and you don't have to be religious to be affected by it. You don't even have to follow any faith because at the end of the day we operate in society and whether or not we believe in religion, many of the choices that are made at the societal level uh, could be influenced by that and that has a bearing on how we conduct our own activities in the organization and outside of it. Given my background as an Indian, I thought, let me talk a little bit about Hindu philosophy or uh, uh, Hindu religion. I'm not going to give you a treatise on uh, uh, Hindu religion. I'm just only going to talk about two concepts and tell you how that affected <coughs> the CSR activities of one of the well-known uh, companies uh, in India. Um, there are these two concepts of dharma and karma, which we get from um, Indian scriptures. Uh, dharma or sanatana dharma, as it is uh, described in the scriptures, includes not only religious duties, but also the moral rights and duties of each individual. So dharma actually sets apart specific duties that individuals should perform uh, in order to be worthy members of a society. So values such as truthfulness, non-injury, generosity, they all come under uh, the dharma. And karma basically, which is, you know, it, it sounds like dharma, but in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, which is one of the ancient scriptures of India, um, there is a distinction that's made between dharma and karma karma being the action with cause and effect. I think it has also seeped into some of the Western parlance. You have heard of karma, right? Many times we say, oh, that was karma. So it can either be good or bad. Essentially it is, if you do good deeds and you accumulate good karma, then good things will happen to you. So it's that kind of a, uh, a barter. So a man turns into something good by good action and then if you have bad actions, then you become bad. Uh, one of the scriptures from southern India called Tirukural, which is uh, in, in Tamil, 
around the second century BC, it was written, it says dharma or responsibility of a leader. Here they're talking about leadership in society. He is to administer justice and protect subjects. And by doing so, the leader or the ruler becomes divine. This is the divine right theory of, of kings, if you will. So that's a very quick primer into what's a, an extremely complex uh, religion, if you want, or philosophy, uh, which is uh, Hinduism. Based on that, what we did was uh, my graduate student, Neva Stumberger, and I, uh, we got a very small grant uh, from the Arthur Page Center. Uh, Dr. Lani mentioned it earlier. We got about $8,000. Dollars uh, to do a small study on CSR perceptions in India and Slovenia. For those of you who know Slovenia, which is a former Yugoslav Republic, um, it's, you can call, you know, quite distant from uh, religion, most of them. Uh, Neva, who is a native Slovenian, tells me that there may just be about 12 or 15 percent of the Slovenian population that calls itself as church going, defining it as maybe once a month or once in two months going to church. Whereas you have, on the contrary, the culture of India, which is very much steeped in religion. So we wanted to see how things are between these two, what we call as you know diverse cultures. So we were looking at the micro level, which is the impact of religion on individual values. And this is only with regard to CSR. Given that CSR, in our view, should be all about altruism, giving back to the community, and so on, doing good, you know, good karma, if you will. At the MISO level, we said how individual values are negotiated in organizational context. As I said earlier, we can't simply say, oh, I'm not religious, so religion doesn't affect me. You know, it could very well affect you if the head of the organization that you are a part of is religious and sets a certain culture within the organization. At the macro level, of course, this is the collectivity of organizations, which is society at large, and how at the societal level CSR is perceived and practiced and what one gets in return for that. So that's really the foundation for this study. Again, I don't have too much time. And so here are just a few preliminary findings. We are still doing some of the interviews and so on. And at least so far, based on the couple of dozen of interviews that we have done in Slovenia, they don't link any of their CSR activities to religion or religious beliefs. This was to be expected. But this is a program of study. We are going to do some more in the future because, and this is where my student Neva and I disagree. She thinks this is it, this finding. And I keep telling her this is not it. There has got to be more. They may not be aware of how religion is affecting them. So that's a constant discussion between her and I. And to her credit, she is willing to explore. And that's what she's doing for her dissertation. So. Um, Whereas Indians seem to attribute a predominant amount of their CSR to various religious beliefs, whether or not they consider themselves to be religious. 
And this is where I just want to bring the concept of, or, or the notion of explicit and implicit CSR. Explicit being more overt, you know, there's this whole body of knowledge in, in communication called CSR communication. And to me, that's an oxymoron because I think CSR has to be altruistic and you don't go about trumpeting the good deeds that you did. Of course, that's a very different perspective. That's not the strategic CSR perspective that most business schools teach their students. Implicit, in my view, is much more of a moral taking on CSR. And here, I'm paraphrasing something from the Hindu scriptures where, where they say that if you do some good deed with your right hand, you give alms to somebody with your right hand, then your left hand should not know it. Uh, it rhymes very well in Sanskrit. Um, the, the, I, I hope you get the idea behind it, which is when you do a good deed, don't go around trumpeting it. Whereas the whole notion of CSR communication really basically is you're getting, you know, earlier I showed you those slides about CSR for corporate reputation and, and, and the like. Okay, uh, I think my time is almost up and Dr. Keita has been uh, generous. So, what are the takeaways from this discussion? I'm not here to present answers. Now we all have to work, including the extra credit students. So I'm posing some questions, which I hope also provide some answers in terms of how I view CSR and the relationship between religion and CSR. By the way, I stayed away from spirituality because I knew there wasn't enough time to do it. So I make a distinction between religion and spirituality, but we will maybe another time we can deal with it. So here are some takeaways. Are we too focused on the strategic or instrumental activities of CSR? The way I have framed them, I hope, gives you the answer from my side, but hopefully during discussion, I want to hear from your side. And are we forgetting that the drivers of CSR, and remember I showed these earlier to you from the two studies, while they are organizations, you know, they're activist groups, the government, and so on, are they not driven by individuals who are making decisions on behalf of the organization? In other words, personal values of those leaders are definitely influencing how those organizations are driving CSR in society. And then I ask, and earlier this morning also, our colleague is not here, that's why I probed a little bit about where the value systems in China come from, you know, the more, okay, there's no religion, but where else does it come? It's not all Confucianism, and even if it is, well, What's the difference between religion and a Confucian thought? Because in Hinduism, they say the uh, scriptures came from Brahma himself, you know, one of the, the gods. So well, at the end, it comes from somewhere. So what's the source of value systems, morals, ethics for different societies? And what do we call those sources? And as I've been saying, is one influenced by religion only if one 
consciously says one is following a particular religious faith or are we influenced even outside of it? And finally, how would the discussion about and debate about CSR change, if at all, if we also brought religion into the discussion? There is so little that mentions religion, you know, the, the CSR literature. It's very few and far between. And I'm simply amazed that something that is so present in many of these societies where the literature has uh, evolved uh, is oblivious to that aspect of it. Um, with that, I conclude my talk. Thank you for being so patient and very attentive as well. for your presentations. So my name is Peter. I'm one of Joel Oster's Chinese students. And uh, this question is more directed toward the first presentation. So I'm going to ask the question in English and then Chinese as well after. So in terms of understanding different cultures, so if we take the United States and China as an example, do you believe when communicating one side has a more difficult time communicating with the other? So in Chinese, this would be,如果是美国和中国和他们两个就是互相想明白别的他们的文化，你觉得中国还是美国会有更多难的难处？So yeah, those are that's my question. So. in Chinese because Chinese mother, my mother taught me. So I emphasize on I, I, I love the beautiful Chinese. So I answer the question in Chinese. Okay. Just take it in the hand. Mayo 大战二次大战，它始终是文化上全世界最强势的国家。So since uh, 1775, World War I ended without 
而对于从就是逐步发展起来的这个中国来说的话，它在历史当中的命运一直是在追赶发达国家。所以呢，就是现在的中国人或多或少都会有一种文化上没有那么自信的感觉。但是我觉得今天要感谢这个全球化的进程，使得不同的文化样式，甚至是有那个时间上差异的文化样式，放在了一个同一个平台上进行交流和学习。三十年来经济的发展，呃，那个世界上多元文化的交流，使我们逐渐感觉到，能够活得像我们自己一样，活得像自己，我们觉得更加重要，而不是跟别人活得一样，或者是我们向别人看齐，像我们自己就 OK 了。So does Milton Friedman. Right, exactly. So that, that cooperation cooperation because it's good for us and we are good to other people because it makes us happy or we get something out of it. That said, I don't know if you saw the article this week on uh, Coca-Cola. There's an article in the New York Times that came out this week about the $120 million that it has spent on 
I know you know that I'm very cynical about such. <laughs> it's not just Coca-Cola that does that. You know, there are those kinds of, uh, uh, what I would say, paradoxes uh, in, in many, many such instances. Will they stop selling to the youth? No. Uh, their competitor, Pepsi, calls itself, you know, in terms of product differentiation. Pepsi is the choice of a new generation, right? And it has been since the 80s when they had Michael Jackson as the brand ambassador those days, and then Britney Spears and every new you know, young star who comes up. So I think that it's just a ploy. Uh, at least that's my take on it. It's basically they want to appear to be socially conscious. To me, if they stopped selling to youth or they said I don't know how you can do this it will be like alcohol then, right? <laughs> at the end of the day maybe they should stop producing the product itself and go into a different product but I'm extremely uh, cynical about those things I think at the end of the day it is just uh, oriented toward building a reputation that they are socially responsible uh, but with regard to your earlier comment about the definition of CSR itself, I think because it has been defined, well, remember, CSR as a concept of study is very young. However, CSR practices have been much, much older. So was there no CSR before we got all these definitions, whether you study Carroll from the 1970s or whoever. And most of them are from Western culture. So the definition of CSR has been very much, in my view, oriented or influenced by those cultural norms. And this is why, in the past, even in public relations, when I've talked about ethnocentricity and how all the experiences have been based, uh, uh, the, the body of knowledge has relied heavily on Western experiences, I have offended many of my friends and colleagues in the, uh, from the West in the audience uh, for critiquing that. And I think there's some justification in their being offended by it because then I tell myself, okay, I'm from India, uh, we are from other parts of the world, what have we done to bring our traditions into the mix? And so I think my program of research here at least is going in that direction to see how can we enrich this? Why should we, when we talk about ethics or morality, it's reasonable to talk about <coughs> Socrates, Aristot uh, Aristotle, and so on, those groups. But we have had ancient cultures, China, India, and so on, that, of course, were not immoral societies. So the problem is we have not, we meaning the natives of those cultures have not brought those, that wisdom or those traditions. And I think that's the challenge I keep expressing 
to uh, multicultural audiences to say, let us go back to our roots and see how we can embrace the body of knowledge. So it's not so much a criticism against the scholars of the West, it's more a criticism about ourselves that we are following rather than leading. And I like um, Dr. Kaifan's uh, you know, uh, remarks in that regard now when she said it's better to also lead. Does that answer your question? Uh, I, I forget your name. Uh, and then you. And <laughs> yeah, it's twofold based on the last question. And another uh, question. To whom? To you. Sri <laughs> <laughs> Ramesh. Um, I recall what I always like to call corporate outreach and you know, giving back. And doing so because we want people to do so, not because one had to. And then corporate social responsibility came into vogue. And I feel that it applies more to environmental standards, labor standards, so on, social responsibility versus charity work. And, and, and I'm still wrestling with these things. So ESPN's first five years, anything we did in the community to help the community, whether you're building homes or giving money or volunteers or whatever, I took my own Christian values of not promoting what we were doing. I said, we are not going to promote, and if you need me to talk about that, but right now I'm digressing, that we were not going to promote what we were doing. We wanted to Thank you. Um, there are many forms of engagement. It's not the only engagement that you can have in the community, right? Correct. So why should only this particular giving back um, be the be all and end all of your display of being engaged? That's my response. Yes, sir. Absolutely. I mean, we are in the same uh, on the same page as far as that is. I think it's a way of life. You know, faith is a way. I'm not here to preach that you must become religious. That's why I said I actually had a few slides about spirituality because I make a distinction between the two. I think humans are spiritual beings. <laughs> ah. it's beautiful. Uh, all of a sudden, people are laughing. I said, what am I? Well, it's my computer. It will go away. <laughs> so I agree with you. I think it's a way of life. It's a whole, you know, I practice yoga. Of course, now it has become a fashion. Uh, but I was practicing it when it was not fashionable. Uh, and meditation and so on. So I have myself seen 
uh, how it has changed me and how I interact. Earlier I made a comment about emotional intelligence basically for that reason. So these things also help you in terms of grounding you in a certain emotion of the self, of the other, and the environment, the, the three levels. Um, these are like uh, during the 
总的来说，我的一个观点就是，这个特色或者说个性，并不是一个把别人都隔绝开来的一个例外，而是融入别人的这个共性当中，才能获得自己的存在。